to the Word for Today, featuring the Bible teaching of Pastor Chuck Smith, founder of the Calvary Chapel Movement. This in-depth one-hour radio broadcast features a verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible, as originally taught by Pastor Chuck. Our study today picks up in the book of Luke, chapter 9, verse 18, as we follow along with today's lesson. He didn't have to go through a mediator, but could just directly speak to the Father at any time just concerning the issues, but no need for him to make petition. And then he asked his disciples, whom do men say that I am? And they told him what Herod had heard and what the common beliefs were, that he was perhaps John the Baptist. Maybe he is Elijah. Malachi had promised that Elijah would come before the Lord to prepare the hearts of the people. And maybe he was one of the old prophets risen from the dead, as we suggested earlier, the prophet Moses, that they were expecting uh, the Messiah to be a prophet like unto Moses. So he said unto them, but whom say ye that I am? And this is always bottom line. It's not what others are saying about Jesus. What do you say about him? What's your opinion? You say, what difference does it make? All the difference in the world. The difference between life and death. Who do you say that he is? Is he the only begotten Son of God? Is he God manifested in flesh? Is he the Savior of the world? Or is he just, in your mind, perhaps a good man, a moralist, a man who taught virtuous things? The problem is, You can't really just say that he was a good man, a moralist, a philosopher, without also acknowledging that he was the only begotten Son of God. Because he said he was the only begotten Son of God. If he was not, then he was a liar. He was a fraud. He was a deceiver. And so you see, people today who try to just Uh, Look at Jesus as a good man. No, he was an evil man if he was not the son of God because he was guilty of deceiving the people and lying to the people. He taught moral virtues. No, no, he didn't. If he is not the son of God, he's a liar. He's a great philosopher. No, he's not a great philosopher. If he is not the son of God, then all that he said is meaningless. There is no truth. He said he was the truth. 
So who do you say that he is? Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. The word Christ is our anglicized form of the Greek word Christos. The Greek word Christos is a translation of the Hebrew word Mashiach. The word Christos and Mashiach mean anointing or the anointed one. Now, the Messiah was to have a threefold office, prophet, priest, and king. It is interesting that both the priest and the kings were anointed for their offices. When a high priest would die and a new high priest would be inaugurated, they would take the oil and they would pour it over his head, acknowledging that he was anointed by God to be the mediator for the people, for the nation. When a king was crowned, there was the pouring of the oil over his head to recognize that he was the one that was anointed by God to reign and to rule over the people. And so the word Mashiach became one of the names for the coming Savior, the Messiah, who had many different names given to him and ascribed to him in the Old Testament, one of them being the Messiah. The name Messiah seemed to catch on more than the others. And our word Messiah is again the anglicized form of the Hebrew Mashiach. But it is the recognition that Jesus is the one that had been promised by God who would come and rule on the throne of David over the world. For unto us a child is born, the prophet Isaiah said, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. And so these are all names for the Messiah. And of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David to order it and to establish it in righteousness and in justice from henceforth, even forever. So the eternal reign of God's King, the Anointed One, the Mashiach. And so Peter is saying, you are the Mashiach of God. You're the one. And so Jesus, in response to Peter, strictly charged them and commanded them to tell no man that thing. Don't tell people. Now, the question is, why would Jesus tell them not to tell? When Peter said, you are the Messiah of God, Peter and the other disciples were thinking of the king that is going to reign, going to rule the world in righteousness and in peace. 
And they were thinking of subduing the nations and establishing this kingdom of God. And that's what was in Peter's mind and the minds of the apostles when Peter said, you are the Messiah of God. Now, Jesus did not want that concept of the reigning Messiah to get out. If they begin to proclaim he's the Messiah, in the Jewish mind there was only one thought concerning the Messiah, and that is he is going to establish a kingdom, he's going to overthrow the Roman rule, he is going to bring Israel into an apex of glory as he reigns, over the earth from Jerusalem. And, and that was in their minds. And Jesus did not want that concept spread. Because at this point, he began to tell them the other aspect of the Messiah that they did not understand and had rejected in their minds. And that is that he, was going to be rejected. That he was going to be slain. But he would rise again the third day. And so Jesus said unto them, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and to be slain and to be raised the third day. Now, he told them actually four things about himself. Number one, I'm going to be rejected by the rulers. Number two, I'm going to be slain. Number three, I'm going to rise again. And number four, I'm going to come again in glory. In other words, those prophecies of the glorious reign of the Messiah will be fulfilled, but not now. Now the prophecies will be fulfilled concerning his taking our iniquities and being wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. The other part, the glorious reign. So in verse 26, Whosoever shall be ashamed of me and my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he shall come. I'm going to come again in his own glory and in his father's and of the holy angels. So he is, he is telling them, don't spread this around because people had the false concept of the Messiah. They were thinking of what the Messiah will do when he returns. But it was first necessary that our sins be forgiven on a righteous basis. And so he came to be, as John the Baptist said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He was to be God's sacrifice for man's sin. So that's why Jesus said, don't tell anybody. And he said to them all, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. The three requirements. The denial of self, the self-life. Paul the Apostle testified, 
I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, and yet it's not I, but Christ that is living in me. And the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm not living for myself anymore. I'm living for Jesus Christ. He, again, in another place said, and when Christ, who is our life, shall appear. The denial of self. Those things which were gained to me, I counted loss, he said, for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, and do but count them but refuse that I may know him and be found in him. Those, those ambitions, those things that were once, you know, a positive, and I was priding myself, I counted those loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus. The denial of self, the self-life. Oh, how painful and how difficult and slow and torturous is death by crucifixion. And we're to reckon ourselves to be crucified with Christ. But we all know how painfully slow and torturous the death of self is as we seek to reckon our own man dead, crucified with him. The second thing Jesus said is take up the cross daily. Now, in the life of Jesus, the cross represented a full and complete surrendering of his will to that of the Father. And it is the same thing in our lives. It's the submitting and the surrendering of ourselves to the will of the Father. You remember in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was facing the cross and he was praying, his prayer was, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but thy will be done. And taking up your cross is just that. It is saying, Father, not my will, but thy will be done. It is submitting and surrendering myself fully and completely to the will of God. If you're going to follow Jesus, that's what you'll have to do. The third thing he said is, follow me. And that to me is an exciting adventure, following Jesus Christ, because you never know where it will lead you. What an exciting adventure to just follow him. It's a thrill. But then he sort of gave a rationale for it all. He said, whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. If you live for yourself, you're going to lose it. All that you gain, all of your efforts is going to be lost. But if you will just lose your life for Jesus, then you'll really find out what living is all about. For what is a man advantaged if he would gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Now, I might at this point uh, ask you if, if, if suddenly uh, a genie would pop out of the bottle and grant you three requests, what would they be? <laughs> What, what is, you know, in the secret of your heart, what is your secret desire, ambition, goal? What is it that uh, 
if all at all possible, you would have or you would do or you would be. Now let me ask you this. What advantage would it be to you if in having that you lost your own soul in having it? In other words, if Satan would come to bargain for your soul, what would you sell it for? What would you be willing to give your soul for? And so Jesus said, what advantage if you gain the whole world but lose himself and be cast away? For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he shall come in his own glory and that of his Father. So the declaration that he's coming again in glory, the glory of the Father, his glory with his holy angels. But I tell you a truth, he said, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God. Now, there are those who say that Jesus was declaring that those disciples that were there would actually see the kingdom of God coming in power and and that Jesus was referring that they wouldn't die before he came in glory. If that is what Jesus meant, then he was wrong. And I can't believe that Jesus was wrong. If in my interpretation of the scripture it makes uh, the scripture ridiculous, then my interpretation is wrong. Because the scripture doesn't say anything ridiculous. And uh, if my interpretation makes the scripture seem to be contradictory, then my interpretation is wrong because the scripture is not contradictory. It's my interpretation that is wrong, not the scripture. What was Jesus saying? Well, it could be a reference to the very next verse. And it came to pass about eight days after these sayings. He relates this next event to what Jesus just said. That he took Peter and John and James and went up into a mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered and his raiment became white and glistering. Uh, that word glistering means flashing. Uh, it, uh, it, it's sort of like lightning flashes. His, his garments became flashing. His countenance was changed. The word there is metamorphosed, which is a change of body. It's what a chrysalis goes through when it becomes a caterpillar. The essential essence is the same, but a different body. And behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elijah. Now, here is the representative head of the law, Moses. Here is the greatest of the prophets in the Old Testament, Elijah. And they appear with Jesus there on the mount and they are talking to him of his decease, which should be accomplished at Jerusalem. So here they're talking about 
his pending crucifixion. When he gets to Jerusalem, they're talking about what's going to happen to him there, how he's going to be dying in Jerusalem. Interesting conversation with Moses and Elijah there on the mount. Now, Peter, when he wrote his epistle, said, we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we declared to you the glory of the Lord. But we were eyewitnesses of that glory when we were with him on the holy mount. We're just not making up stories. We were there. We actually saw it. We were eyewitnesses. And Peter is bearing testimony to this particular experience when he was there with James and John on the Mount of Transfiguration. But then he went on to say, but we have a more sure word of prophecy. In other words, I'm an eyewitness. I saw it. But I've got something even more certain than what I saw. And that's the word of God and the prophecies of the word of God. The more sure word. Testimony. So it came to pass as they departed from him, that is Moses and Elijah, Peter said unto Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. This is good. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said, or as another gospel uh, writer said, not knowing what to say. If you don't know what to say, sometimes it's just better to keep quiet. Uh, but, but Peter is, is moved by this, and he says, Lord. Now, you see, Peter is confused because acknowledging that Jesus is the Messiah of God and then having Jesus begin to talk to him about his being rejected by the rulers, he's going to be crucified, going to be slain, third day he'll rise again. Uh, Peter doesn't like that. He likes what he just saw. Let's stay here. Let's don't leave here. I don't like, you know, the thought of going to Jerusalem and dying. Let's just stay here, Lord. Let's, let's, not, let's not go from here. There are, there are those experiences that we have in our Christian walk where the presence of God and the glory of God becomes so real to us that we really don't want to leave. We, we want to just stay right there and bask in the glory of the experiences that we've just had. But you can't live forever on the mountaintop. There's a valley down there where people are in need, need of the love of the Lord and need of his help, and we need to go down to the valley to minister to them. So Peter, not knowing what he was saying, just said, well, let's build three tabernacles, let's stay here. And while he thus spake, there came a cloud and it overshadowed them. And they feared as they entered into this cloud. And there came a voice out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. Hear him. And when the voice was passed, Jesus was found alone. And they kept it close. They told no man in those days of those things which they had seen. Uh, they, they kept it to themselves until after his resurrection. And I said, then Peter actually wrote about it in his epistle. And so it came to pass on the next day, 
when they were come down the hill, now Jesus is coming down the hill with Peter, James, and John, there were many people there to meet him. And behold, there was a man among the company of people who cried out, saying, Master, I beg thee, look upon my son, for he is my only child. And lo, a spirit taketh him, and he suddenly cries out. And it then tears him, and he foams again, and it bruises him, hardly ever departing from him. Now, some commentators and writers have said that this young man was afflicted with epileptic, epileptic seizures. Far from the truth. That's tragic, actually, to make that kind of a judgment. Because that would then cause people to look at a person with epilepsy and say, well, it's some kind of a demonic spirit. And that is far from the truth. Epilepsy is a brain disorder. It's not demonic spirits. Yes, there were symptoms like symptoms of epilepsy, but the Bible tells us that this was a evil spirit that had invaded this young man's body. And in another gospel, it tells us that oftentimes it would throw this boy in the fire trying to destroy him. So uh, don't buy that epileptic seizure kind of a bit because there is no relationship between epileptic seizures and demon possession. And it would be cruel unscriptural and unjust to associate the two. He said, I besought your disciples to cast him out and they could not. So here Jesus is on the mountain and Peter, James and John and they're having this fantastically glorious heavenly experience. Jesus is transfigured. They see him in glory in the glory of his kingdom. God's voice is speaking to them out of a cloud. And as they come down the hill, what do they find? The devil is waiting for them at the bottom of the hill. Have you ever discovered that? <laughs> right after your great spiritual experiences, you're going to have an encounter with Satan and his whole purpose is to rob you of the joy and the glory of that experience. You know, you just sometimes have those wonderful experiences where you're just basking in, in the glory of what God is and what God has done. And, all, and then Satan comes right along and he tries to rob you. How many people, after being baptized with the Holy Spirit, have some of the greatest spiritual struggles they've ever known as Satan comes and even challenges the experience? tries to rob you of the joy of it, tries to take away the, 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 the glory of, of what you've just experienced. And so here it was at the bottom of the hill. And when he said, I came to your disciples, they couldn't do anything, Jesus answering said, Oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and suffer you? He said, bring the son to me. 
And as he was yet coming, the devil threw him down and tore him. And Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, and he healed the child and delivered him again to his father. And they were all amazed at the mighty power of God. But while they wondered, everyone at all things which Jesus did, he said to his disciples, Now let this saying sink down into your ears. He says, Now listen. Let it sink in. The Son of Man shall be delivered into the hands of men. Let that sink in. You see, still, they weren't ready to accept that he was going to be crucified, that he was going to be rejected. They still had this Messiah concept of ruling and reigning, and we're going to have positions of authority and power. Now he says, let this sink in. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they understood not this saying. It was hid from them that they perceived it not, and they were afraid to ask him what he was talking about. Then there arose reasoning among them. Now look, he just said, look, let it sink in. And what's the next thing? They're arguing as to who will be the greatest when he sets up his kingdom. No wonder he said, oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long do I have to suffer you guys? I think that this should be an encouragement to every one of us. When we see the kind of men the Lord used to do his work, look what he had to work with. You know, so many times we look at ourselves and say, well, you know, what can God do through me? You know, what have I got? And, and oh, well, I often say that, but then I look at Peter and some of the others and say, well, you know, I don't know. Look a lot like me. <laughs> if God can use them, he can use me. And that's really why God uses people like us, so that other people will say, well, if God can use them, he can sure use me. <laughs> to realize that God uses just plain, ordinary, who have flaws, who have faults, who do dumb things, who can't perceive when it's just, you know, given to them straight. And yet God uses them. So here Jesus says, now get this straight. Let it sink in. And then they start arguing. Which of them is going to be the greatest? And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a child and he set them in the midst of them. Or he set the little child by him, took him on his lap and he said to them, Whosoever will receive this child in my name receives me. And whosoever receives me receives him that sent me. For he that is the least among you, the same shall be great. The path of greatness is taking the lesser place. The least. Whoever will be the least among you shall be Great. So John answered and said, Master, we saw one who was casting out devils in your name, and we stopped him because he didn't follow with us. <laughs> Here's the first attempt to develop a denomination. <laughs> we stopped him, Lord. <laughs> I, 
I, I'm sure, don't you know that John was looking for points and, and wanting the Lord to say, well, good boy, John, you know. But Jesus said unto him, forbid him not, for he that is not against us is for us. When Moses brought the 70 elders into the tabernacle to receive the anointing of the Holy Spirit that they might help him in the administration duties of the great numbers of people who had been brought into the wilderness. And as the Spirit of God came upon the 70 and they began to prophesy, someone came running in. And they said, Eldad and Medad are out in the camp prophesying. They're not in here with us. They're out there in the camp. And Joshua said, oh, my Lord, Moses, shall I go and stop them? And Moses said, no, don't stop them. Would to God that all of Israel were prophesying, that his spirit was upon them all. Let's not try to corral everything within our borders. Let's just rejoice and say, God, bless them all. We don't have any corner on God. It would be my desire that every church in this community was teaching the word of God in a systematic way so that they could know how God blesses his word. It doesn't matter if they follow us or not. If they're serving God and bringing people to Jesus Christ, let's rejoice. God deliver us and keep us from party spirit. That's a mark of carnality. Paul writing to the Corinthians said, while some of you say I'm of Cephas and another says I'm of Apollos and others says, well, I'm of Paul. He said, are you not carnal? Walk you not like men? Is Christ divided? And may God help us not to see ourselves as some exclusive little club and everybody has to follow and march to our drumbeat. Not so. And may God ever keep us from that kind of a mental attitude. But let us always be able to rejoice in the moving of God's Spirit, no matter where it may be or to whom it might be happening to. So it came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up. Now, that is the time for his crucifixion and received back into heaven. Received up is a, is a uh, reference to his ascending again into heaven after his resurrection. So the time was coming that he should be received up. He steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. In his heart, the die is cast. Not going to stay on the mountain of transfiguration. Not going to stay within the relative security of the Galilee. He's going to go to Jerusalem to be delivered to the high priest, then delivered to the Gentiles to be crucified and to rise again the third day. So setting his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers before his face, and they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. They went in to get lodging and, and to prepare for Jesus to spend the night in this Samaritan village. But they did not receive him because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. Such a contentious 
spirit between the Gentiles and the Samaritans. As the woman of Samaria had said to Jesus earlier, why do you ask me for a drink? The Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And so here we find this, this same kind of ethnic strife. And just because it appeared that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, they said, can't stay here. They wouldn't receive him. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, still looking for points, I think, Lord, you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them like Elijah did, you know? Don't like us? All right, we'll crisp you, you know. <laughs> Zap you. We call fire from heaven and consume. Lord, is that you want us to do that? Now you understand why Jesus gave them the nickname of Bonerges, the sons of thunder. <laughs> They're ready to bring the thunder and lightning on this village of the Samaritan to destroy it because they didn't receive. <laughs> But instead of saying, good boys, yeah, he turned and rebuked them. And he said, you know not what manner of spirit you're of. Not come to destroy. Come to save. To seek and to save those that are lost. And so the, the gentleness with which Jesus received this uh, rejection by the Samaritans. For the Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives, but he's come to save them. And they just went to another village. And it came to pass as they went in the way, a certain man said unto him, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. Touched emotionally. Lord, I'll go with you wherever you go. And there are a lot of people that have those moments of emotion where their hearts are touched. And he said, Lord, I'll go with you. And Jesus more or less said, consider the cost, fellow. Don't just make an emotional uh, commitment. Consider the cost. And he said unto him, foxes have holes. The birds of the air have nest. But the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Foxes, they have their dens. Birds have their nests. I don't have any place to lay my head. Now, don't feel sorry for Jesus. <laughs> he wasn't looking for sympathy. Really, how blessed to say there's nothing in this world to which I'm attached. I'm free. I'm free to do what the Father wants. And then to another, Jesus called him. This fellow was volunteering. To another, Jesus called him and said, follow me. But he said, Lord, allow me first to go and bury my father. Jesus said, let the dead bury their dead. But go thou and preach the kingdom of God. Is Jesus being heartless? Is he being cruel? Is he saying, don't attend to the family affairs, taking care of the dead? No, this business of saying, I must first bury my father is actually a phrase of postponement. It's saying, I'll do it after my father dies. Now, his father might be in the peak of health. 
The young fellow could have been 20 years old. His father, 40 years old, still healthy, working hard. He says, well, allow me to bury my father first. No, his father wasn't dead. It's just that I'm going to hang around the house. I'll, I'll, I'll come later. And postponing the commitment. And there are many people that are in that place of sort of, well, as soon as I take care of this, you know, and as soon as I get this all taken care of and all, then I will. The postponement of commitment. And then another one said, Lord, I will follow thee, but let me first go and bid them farewell, which are at home at my house. And Jesus said unto him, No man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. In other words, when you put your hand to the plow and you start to plow the furrow, you'll never plow a straight furrow if you're looking back. You've got to be looking ahead if you're going to plow a straight furrow. And there are so many people who are trying to live in the past, in the past experiences, and they are always looking back at what God had done in their life in a past experience that they had, a commitment that they had once made, a work that they once did. But Paul said, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth to those things which are before, I press towards the mark for the prize of the height. No looking back. A lot of people look back to the old life and sort of, you know, well, the children of Israel, they look back to Egypt. And as they look back, what did they remember? Did they remember the bondage? Did they remember the slavery? Did they remember the beatings? Did they remember their tired, aching bodies, their bruised uh, bodies that were beaten? Did they remember the blisters and, and all of the suffering and all? No, no, no. They remembered the leeks and the garlic, the meat that they ate. And isn't it interesting how so many times as we look back, we sort of forget the bitterness and all we can remember is, wow, remember when we, you know, and, and, and we, we, we think of only that, we, we forget the bondage, we forget the pain, we forget the suffering. No, not looking back, but looking ahead to what God has in store for us in the future. Let's always keep our face ever forward, looking ahead, because God wants to do so much more. Let's not just stop and revel in the past. Let's move on to what God wants to do in the future. Beginning with the 10th chapter, we have an area of scripture that is not covered in the other gospels with the exception of a short passage in chapter 11 uh, beginning with verse 14 and going through about verse 28 we are now looking at the last six months of the ministry of Jesus and this last six months is spent in the area known as Perea, which is Transjordan. It's the other side of the Jordan River. 
And of course, there were many Jews that had established themselves in the area of Transjordan. The country, of course, religiously was centered in Jerusalem and in Judea, which was the southern part. North of Jerusalem, you had the area of Samaria. And as far as the Jews were concerned, they had no dealings with the Samaritans. They hated the Samaritans. North of Samaria was the Galilee, which they called the Galilee of the Gentiles. And those Jews from Judea were contemptuous of the area of the Galilee and gave it that title, the Galilee of the Gentiles. The area across the Jordan, known as Perea, was just ignored by the Jews. They sort of just acted like it didn't exist. Now, Jesus is on his way toward Jerusalem. He is leaving Galilee for the last time. He began his journey toward Jerusalem, coming down through Samaria. And you remember last week when the disciples had gone into a village to sort of prepare for Jesus to stay there. And when the people saw that his face was going towards Jerusalem, they did not receive him. And you remember James and John wanted to call down fire and consume them. So Jesus has now, with his disciples, crossed over the Jordan into that area on the other side, Perea, and he will spend the rest of his ministry there in Perea, with the exception of a couple of visits to Jerusalem, which John records for us. But most of the information that we'll be getting in the next uh, several chapters through uh, chapter 18, uh, about verse 24 or so, uh, is just uh, exclusively found in Luke's gospel. You don't find it in Matthew and Mark. And uh, John tells us of a couple of visits of Jesus to Jerusalem, but retiring again back to uh, the other side of the Jordan River where he'll spend the last six months of his ministry. So after these things, that is their experiences in Samaria, the Lord appointed other 70 also. Now, you've got to realize that Jesus is traveling with a large company. At this point, there is a large following that is going with him around the countryside. And so he appoints another 70. Now, the 70 is a very significant number to the Jews. Uh, you remember that uh, Moses, when uh, he realized that he wasn't able to handle all of the uh, problems that were arising among the people, they appointed 70 elders uh, that they might uh, receive the Holy Spirit and assist Moses in the ministry to the people. And so that became a significant number to the Jews. There were 70 in the Sanhedrin. 
the religious council of the Jews was made up of 70 members. And uh, when the Hebrew scriptures were translated into the Greek in order that the Jews might be able to read their own scriptures because the most of them only spoke Greek and not Hebrew. Hebrew became the language of the scholars. There were 70 men appointed for that task, and so it was called the Septuagint because of the 70 men appointed to that task. So 70 was a significant number to them, and Jesus appointed other 70, that is, other than the 12 apostles, and he sent them two by two before him uh, into every city and place whether he himself would come. So Jesus is now sending out 35 teams of two to go into the area of Perea. It's new territory for Jesus. And so they are to go in and they are to prepare the people for the coming of Jesus. Uh, They're sort of an advanced team going to the towns and villages, doing the works of Jesus and telling the people of Jesus and of the fact that he would be visiting through their territory. So it was really an organized effort in evangelism of this territory of Perea. Therefore he said unto them, the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. There are three times when Jesus mentions the harvest. You remember when he, in John's gospel early on, met the woman at the well, Jacob's well there in Samaria, and when he revealed to her that he was the Messiah, she said, I know when the Messiah comes, he's going to teach us all things. He said, woman, I, who am speaking to you, I'm he. And so she went into the village and she said, come and see a man who has told me everything I've ever done. Is this not the Messiah? And while the disciples were talking with Jesus the Samaritans began to pour out of this little city of Shechem, crossing the fields to Jacob's well where Jesus was waiting for them. And Jesus said, don't say four months and then comes the harvest. Behold the fields, they are white unto harvest. And the Samaritans came and heard the word and were converted. Now, if we had sent um, a team to Samaria to determine the uh, possibilities of evangelism, they would have come back and said, well, that is a tough territory. It's going to take some time up there. You'll need time for plowing and breaking up the hard ground and planting the seed. It's, you know, the harvest is at least four months away. And Jesus said, no, no, don't say four months. Look, it's, it's ripe now for harvest. The Samaritans, hated by the Jews, but Jesus said they're ready for the harvest. In the Galilee region, which the Jews looked at with contempt, when Jesus saw the multitudes, the Bible said, he had compassion upon them. And 
he saw them as as the harvest and he and he speaks of them as as the harvest now here he sees this area of perea ready to be harvested and he said the harvest truly is great but the laborers are few pray ye therefore the lord of harvest that he would send forth laborers into his harvest We'll return with more of our in-depth study in the book of Luke in our next broadcast as Pastor Chuck focuses his attention on the need for laborers, and we do hope you'll make plans to join us. But right now, I'd like to remind you that if you'd like to order a copy of today's message, simply order Luke 9 through 10 when visiting the wordfortoday.org. And while you're there, we encourage you to browse the many additional biblical resources by Pastor Chuck. You can also subscribe to the Word for Today podcast or sign up for our email subscription. Once again, all this can be found at thewordfortoday.org. If you'd like to call, our toll-free number is 1-800-272-WORD. And our office hours are Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Again, that's 1-800-272-9673. If you prefer to write, our mailing address is The Word for Today, P.O. Box 8000, Costa Mesa, California, 92628. And now, on behalf of The Word for Today, we'd like to thank all of you who share in supporting this ministry with your prayers and financial support. And be sure and join us again next time as Pastor Chuck continues his verse-by-verse study through the Bible. That's right here on the next edition of The Word for Today. And now, once again, here's Pastor Chuck. Father, we thank you for your word and for the strength and the encouragement that it gives to us, for the learning opportunities to learn of your nature, to learn what manner of spirit we're of, to learn who you really are, to learn the power, Lord, that you've made available to us, Lord, to learn the lessons that we need to learn of commitment, surrender, obedience. Lord, you've got a lot to do in our lives. And we thank you for what you're doing. We thank you, Lord, that we're not what we were, but we realize there's a long way to go. So keep us ever pressing towards the mark looking forward in Jesus' name. Amen. This program has been sponsored by Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, California. The Word for Today would like to invite you to come along on a revolutionary study of the Bible as we introduce Pastor Chuck's Genesis commentary in an ebook format. Not only will you have Pastor Chuck's in-depth commentary, this ebook allows access to enhanced research studies by honored Christian scholars instantly. Features include Hebrew and Greek word definitions, as well as images of historical maps and places just by clicking or touching your screen. An online dictionary, plus highlighting, note-taking, and bookmarking. And everywhere Pastor Chuck shares what he learned or studied something, you now have access to those very same notes. 
to get ready to study the Bible in a whole new way. Now you don't have to imagine what it was like to be there. This is the next best thing. To find out how to download Pastor Chuck's Genesis Commentary to your electronic device, please call The Word for Today at 800-272-9673. Or to watch a video demonstration, visit us online at thewordfortoday.org.